The Gist is sponsored by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store. Squarespace features an easy-to-use interface, beautiful templates, and 24-7 customer support. Right now, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, June 2nd, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There's so much to talk about. Do you really want my take? Sure you do. Sepp Blatter stepping down as head of FIFA. My take? If this move saves the life of one migrant worker building a stadium in Qatar, well, then there will still be an estimated 3,999 workers to be saved. FIFA's corruption is depressing, it's legendary, but where it shows up most in the realm of the actual, not the symbolic, is the 2022 Qatar World Cup. Construction for the disaster pending in the Desert Peninsula has already uh, killed 1,200 workers. Estimates are four to 5,000 could die. So let's hope the process by which Qatar won the cup is sufficiently re-examined to the tune of some other venue being given the cup. Netherlands and Belgium have put their hands up. It could go to Australia. It could go to U.S., ABQ, any place but Qatar. That's what Mike thinks. What does Mike think about Caitlyn Jenner? I hope she's happy. But remember, the suicide rate among all Americans is about 4.5%. For trans individuals, it's about 10 times that, according to the Williams Institute, which in collaboration with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention looked at this. 41% of transgender and gender non-conforming adults attempted suicide. Do not think because Caitlyn Jenner is famous, because she's on a magazine cover, because there's a press blitz, because Buzz Bissinger said she felt happy because people who are her relatives or used to be her relatives are tweeting how much they support her. Don't think there's not going to be extremely tough times ahead. But I am heartened to think that most Americans are showing their decent side. Most but not all. Here is presidential candidate Mike Huckabee speaking to a conference. The fact that we are now in city after city watching ordinances that say that your seven-year-old daughter, if she goes into the restroom, cannot be offended and you can't be offended if she's greeted there by a 42-year-old man who feels more like a woman than he does a man. Now, I wish someone had told me when I was in high school that I could have felt like a woman when it came time to take showers and PE. I'm pretty sure I would have found my feminine side and said, Coach, I think I'd rather shower with the girls today. That cackling horde was the conference of religious broadcasters. You are a horrible person, Mike Huckabee. I thought you were just a shyster, but you're horrible. That's what this moment right now, America 2015, Caitlyn Jenner, that's what it's all about. It's all about preserving a seven-year-old's right to be offended. Let's deconstruct this. If she's greeted in a bathroom, no one should be doing any greeting in a bathroom, okay? I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. Have they ever said I was offended I'd say offended. What are you, kindergarten dudgeon? Sorry, daddy, in between bites of fruit roll up, I took umbrage. It is my right. What you do, I think everyone listening knows this, but maybe I'll talk to Mike Huckabee right now. What you do is explain to your seven-year-old, because you're an adult, explain that people are different and you shouldn't make them feel bad and that everyone deserves respect. Well, that's what this Mike would do. It's that one that wears the mantle of family values. 
This one's just trying to raise non-horrible people. I don't have a catchy brand name for that. So that's some of what Mike thinks. Later on in the spiel, I'll tell you a little bit more about what I think. One tiny itty-bitty aspect of the Avengers film, it's the carnage, the civilian carnage by Odin's beard. There's a lot, a lot of dead people. And we'll be visited by Maria Konnikova. The NBA finals are nigh, and the sleeves all those basketball players wear are tight. Not just NBA players, AARP members, anyone with achy joints supposedly can benefit from a compression sleeve. Is that bullshit? But first, Russian tanks, bunker-busting bombs, and a withering glance. Two of the three will be covered as we engage in munitions talk. Bang. Crisis in Ukraine. Hundreds of thousands dead in the Syrian civil war, a nuclear deal with Iran. What do all of these things and so many more have in common from Yemen to Saudi Arabia throughout the world, Iraq, Ramadi? Weapons. Weapons. Weapons are what's killing people. Weapons are what's driving these conflict. But so often we don't even talk about the weapons. And the differences between the weapons often mean the differences between outcomes in these wars or near wars or could be wars. Dr. Rebecca Grant is the president of IRIS Independent Research, which is a public policy research organization in D.C. She has worked for the secretary of the Air Force and the chief of staff of the Air Force. She knows her weapons. Hello, Dr. Rebecca Grant. Hi, Mike. Hi. Let's go through a couple of them. Now, with the Iran deal, supposedly Iran has one underground nuclear facility that is all but impenetrable, though there might be one weapon that could get to this facility. It is the MOP, the Massive Ordnance Penetrator. What do we know about the MOP? The MOP, Massive Ordnance Penetrator. We uh, now have a small operational stockpile of the MOP, it's a very big bomb, weighs about 14 tons, designed to drop out of a B-2 bomber, uh, fly very precisely to its target, but instead of uh, blowing up on the surface, it's designed to go down into some layers of dirt, concrete, and whatever to hit what the military likes to call hardened, deeply buried targets. Mm-hmm. That's the job of the MOP. And so do how confident is the Air Force, is the military, that it could penetrate the underground bunker uh, in Iran, if need be? Well, I think nothing's ever for certain, but there's no question that underground facilities are not new. They've been around for decades. We've seen them um, in other parts of the world, uh, Korea as well. So the military's known for a while that they needed to have a weapon that would be able to penetrate. The development of the MOP is designed to pull a couple technologies together. One, of course, is the precision guidance. The second is the shape of the weapon and its fusing to enable it to go through layers of material. And then finally, there is the explosive material in the weapon itself designed to accomplish the job once it gets to the target. Um, so so it, is it a drill? Is, how does it burrow down? Two questions. How does it burrow down, and when does it, quote-unquote, know to explode? Those are excellent questions. It burrows down through kinetic force. This is dropped at pretty high speed from relatively high altitude, and it's shaped to be able to go right through. So if you, if you drop something at the right angle with the right 
pointy end on it, it can go through the material. How does it know? That's up to the fusing and the design of the weapon. So this weapon has to sense whether it's in something loose like uh, sand or dirt, whether it's going through something hard like concrete. And so the, the guessing game is to try to figure out how an underground facility is constructed, how many layers of what the bomb has to go through, and to set the fusing accordingly. Okay, let's go to Ukraine now, where the United States is not, they, they have some experts in there, and they're training Ukrainian forces, and that is turns out to be, wow, I was reading about some of the rudimentary things that U- Ukrainian forces don't know how to do, and it was kind of eye-opening, but they also give not offensive but defensive gear. Now, how do they define this? Is it just that anything that can't ki- literally kill the enemy is considered defensive gear? Yeah, that's really uh, the state of the art, and sometimes we hear it talked about as lethal and non-lethal. Right. So we all know what lethal is. Mop is lethal. But in Ukraine, the situation is different, and the way I see it is the aid that's been approved so far is to try to help Ukraine's forces do a bit better job on their own. Mm-hmm. So that can include things like um, vehicles, uh, you know, personnel carriers, medicine. It can include bulletproof vests or armor plating. Very interesting. Another area is the U.S. has provided some equipment that can help Ukraine's troops have a better picture of the battle space. In other weapons news, the Russians have debuted a tank called the Armada, not like the Spanish Armada, it's A-R-M-A-T-A, at least least that is the translation from the Cyrillic as far as I can surmise, and the Armada is described by Vladimir Putin as as a super tank and the greatest tank in the world. Couple questions here. First, is Putin uh, engaged in puffery or is this the best tank we've ever seen? Of course Putin would call it the best <laughs> tank ever. Because it's a Russian tank. I mean, come on. Uh, why, why would he have anything less than the best tank ever? Um, that's a, it's, it's interesting. The Armada is, um, it is a tank, but it's other things, too. So it's, it's a, a chassis, what you think of from all the World War II movies of the tracks rolling along. It is that classic tank body. And we know the Russians have a really long, legendary history of developing incredibly effective tanks and tank tactics. Russia is, after all, a land power. And so I'm not really surprised that Putin's gone ahead and developed this. It comes in different variants. So there's a classic tank variant. There are rumors about a drone tank variant. And we also know that it can bolt on and off some different equipment. One of the key alternative versions of this is going to be one that covers air defenses. So it puts on an air defense gun. Russians have always had some pretty lethal air defense cannons, essentially. And it looks like the Armada may be fitted out to carry those as well. So it's a pretty uh, powerful piece of equipment. No doubt. And so for a time, for at least a decade, maybe post-Cold War, the idea of tanks as being very important battles of war, at least in America, I saw that idea declining. Hey, we're no longer going to be fighting land wars, trench warfare. It's an old way of thinking. But now let's look at Russia. I mean, they're threatening their neighbors. They're involved in the Ukraine. I think we maybe wrote off the tank too readily. Well, clearly Putin didn't write off the tank, but there there are at least four or five reasons why he's gone ahead and developed this. One is 
some of Putin's strongest supporters are the workers in the armaments plants. So he's always had a big domestic constituency in the Russian military industry. He's been saying for years that he would develop this and he would push Russian military development. Since the disputes with Ukraine, he has also talked more about wanting Russia to be completely self-sufficient. So he's really ramped that up. Now, we believe there are only a few prototypes of this uh, tank family yeah. so far, but he is saying that he wants to build over 2,000 of them. Uh, it's a land power. Uh, Putin doesn't have to transport these by air and put them on a ship and deploy them to Europe as our concept was back in the days of NATO and the Cold War. But yeah, it is clearly an aggressive move. And he's talked a little bit about, in fact, building a fleet of large cargo aircraft that can transport up to 400 of these tanks anywhere in the world. That's an idea we, obviously, that's something the U.S. can already do. And you're right, that's an idea that's really a throwback to a, a much more aggressive international system. We shouldn't be quaking in our boots that these armadas will be rolling uh, into Western Europe anytime soon, but I could see the logic of it from his perspective. Absolutely. And it looks like everyone enjoyed seeing them roll down, uh, you know, down the streets in Russia. Uh, and as a policy weapon, they've been very effective so far, even though they do just have a handful. But building the tanks is a big part of his uh, of, uh, of, of keeping in power and uh, maintaining his popularity with one of his strongest bases, which is those those Russian industrial workers. OK, and I want to ask you one last question. We've hopscotched around the globe and we've talked about different specific weapons. And I hope to do this again with other weapons in the the news. But in general, how much does Western or American military superiority depend on the sophistication of its weaponry? Well, in the end, it is about the weaponry. And I think it depends on three things. One, our great men and women in our armed forces. Secondly, the great information environment, our reconnaissance, our communications, our ability to pull that information together. But in the end, our deterrence is only as effective as what is on the pointy end of that uh, equation. So whether it's the MOP or whether it's a program like the Long Range and a ship missile, it's essential that we keep up to date with our weapons. Rebecca Grant is the president of Iris Independent Research, and uh, she, I'll read this line from her bio. She writes regularly for Air Force Magazine. She lives in Washington with her husband, her daughter, her motorcycle, and her Tennessee walking horse, Red. <laughs> All relevant. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Mike. Enjoyed it. I was getting a little, I'm not going to say overwhelmed, a little intimidated by the last chat. I wanted to scale it back a little bit. So I went to a site where I looked up a different weapon. I was looking up slingshots. Slingshots were first used in the late 1800s, shortly after the introduction of vulcanized rubber. Is that true? That can't be true. There's a pretty famous story in the Old Testament. So there I'm on a website about slingshots. It's not just that the fact is wrong. The visuals are all wrong. They got a side menu on the side. It says subcategories, blowguns, crossbows, tactical tomahawks and axes. Like, why would your tactical axes be lumped in with your tomahawks? How tactical can they be? It's a clutter. You don't know what's going on in this site. Some of the axes are arranged blady side to the left, some blady side to the right. It's just a hash, the kind of hash a tactical axe could make. But if the designer of this website had used Squarespace, I think they'd be better off. I think you'd know more where to get your tactical axes and how they were different from your tactical tomahawks. 
So this episode of The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, where they advise that you can start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace offers uh, sites that look professionally designed regardless of skill level, right? You could have hatchet hands. Squarespace will still help you. There's no coding required. It's intuitive. It's easy to use. They have state-of-the-art technology powering the site to ensure security and stability. It is trusted by millions of people. Well, it used to be tons of millions until a couple of them got their hands on too many crossbows. Anyway, millions of people trust Squarespace. Some of the most respected brands in the world trust Squarespace. You too should start trusting Squarespace. It starts at $8 a month and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial site today. No credit card required. It's squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. The NBA Finals start tomorrow. LeBron James is going to be there. He had a game-winning shot in the playoffs. Paul Pierce, a few weeks ago, he had a game-winning shot in the playoffs. Derrick Rose of the Bulls, he had a game-winning shot in the playoffs. Picture those shots if you watch the games or just the highlights. What do two of those guys have in common but one doesn't? Rose is the odd man out. I'll give you another hint. Think about Steph Curry. There he is, going up for the three, hits the shot. Look at Steph. Look at Steph in your mind's eye. Look at his arms. What doesn't he have on his arms that Pierce and LeBron do? I'm talking about compression sleeves, those sleeves that some NBA players claim either fend off injuries or just make them better. But it's not just for NBA players. Compression technology, maybe we could call it, is being marketed to anyone with achy joints. Do they work or more to the point because Maria Konnikova is here? Are they bullshit? Hello, Maria. Hey, Mike. So Maria Konnikova, as you know, plays Is That Bullshit with us here on The Gist. She has a background in the behavioral sciences. She's a writer for The New Yorker and is an author of a couple books, including an upcoming book on con men. Are compression sleeves a con? Are they the greatest con the compression sleeve industry ever pulled? Uh, At the very least, they could be Dumbo's feather, right? If you believe in them, maybe they help. Absolutely. And you actually, you stole some of my thunder, Mike, because Uh some of the studies have found that people perceive that when they actually wear the sleeves, they're less tired, they're more efficient, their muscles recover faster. And even though when scientists go in and try to measure all that physiology and try to do a nice controlled study, they don't actually find any differences. If they think they're doing better, are they actually doing better? And is it actually good for them? Okay. So what is the claim of the compression sleeve maker, be they for your arm, be they for your ankle joints? It's usually joints. What are they saying they do for your joints and muscles? Well, I think it's originally taken from the medical world where there are multiple studies over decades um, about the use of compression sleeves for people who are sick, who have um, problems with their arteries, who have venous hypertension or you know, hypertension in their veins, um, and who need some sort of help. And it actually does, for those people, um, help relieve symptoms, relieve pressure, improve circulation. You will also see them on people who are on bed rest and not Mm -hmm. allowed to move. You'll sometimes get a little compression sleeve on your legs to help improve blood flow. Um, And so what people thought, 
in sports was like, hey, you know, this works well in medicine. We like improved blood flow. We want to help our muscles. We want to reduce fatigue. We want all of these things. If we put them on while we're playing, is it going to make us into better athletes? Is it going to help our cardiovascular function? Is it going to help our blood flow? Is it going to help us be able to run a little longer, jump a little higher, ski a little faster? These have been tested on alpine skiers. Yeah. Um, reach so, a little further for that green light. Oh, sorry. Exactly. I thought it was the end of a great Gatsby for a second. <laughs> but by the way, blood flow? So, so restri- okay, this is what I know. I broke my ankle many times mm-hmm. and there's this acronym RICE, rest, ice, compression, elevation. So compression's important, I guess, one of these four important mm-hmm. things when you have a sprain. I didn't know that. I, yeah. I've never rice. heard of rice. Is it, well, you didn't break your ankle as much as I did. Um, is it, Does it help blood flow, though? How does it help blood flow? I don't understand how that might work. Well, because you are basically pressing down mm-hmm. on the veins, and so you are helping them circulate by kind of doing some of the, what does the heart do? It pumps, right? Okay, so you're sort so of massaging you're, you're, the exactly, veins, you're, massaging the blood you're through helping, the veins. You're helping, you're doing some of that work. I see. They're, they are popular with all kinds of athletes. Mm-hmm. I can report it's just that the basketball athletes are the ones who wear shorts and tank tops, so we see them. Yep. Uh, football players wear them too. A lot bikers, of most wide receivers. Bikers, bikers. like them. Yeah. Runners, especially yeah. long distance runners. Yeah. Like so how do, they, how do they test performance? So what they do is they get lots of athletes to come into the lab and they'll test them without compression and then they'll test them with compression. Or what they'll do is they'll have three groups of athletes and they'll have them all do, you know, one particular race or with skiers, they might have them actually ski and they have some of them with no compression, some of them with compression and some with different degrees of compression. So they can say, oh, does it matter? Is it medium compression or high compression? Like, does that actually matter? And then they measure a lot of physiological variables, which is why you often get them in the lab, because you want to measure their heart, you want to measure different things in their blood, you want to measure their breathing, you want to measure how they're actually performing to the you know, milliseconds so that you know, are you faster? For some people, they make them jump, they make them jump sideways, they make them do lots of things to test their actual muscle function. And what people have found has been incredibly inconclusive. Oh. So basically, there are some studies that claim, yes, there are certain uh, certain advantages, but I found a few meta-analyses that have looked at the literature, and it's not a very long literature. Mm-hmm. We're talking maybe the last 10 years, 15 years, and I'm actually going to quote from a study that was um, quite well-controlled. It was I, from the I German... Love, I love when you quote from well-controlled <laughs> from studies. From the German Sport University in Cologne, and this was done in 2011, and this is their conclusion. This first evaluation of the potential effects of increasing levels of compression on cardiorespiratory and metabolic parameters during submaximal exercise revealed no effects whatsoever. But there's, there's a caveat to that. Mm-hmm. So most, most studies find that overall, when you average out, there's really very little effect other than the psychological things mm-hmm. we've been talking about. However, where the effect might be, and again, there's very, there's still very weak evidence and we need to see more research, but it might be after. So some people claim that after exercise, if you put on the compression sleeves, it can help muscle recovery. And I think that's what a lot of NBA after. players would say. They wouldn't say, I make a shot or miss a shot because of, or even 1% mm-hmm. affected by the compression sleeve. 
except for this, I play an 82-game season, 100 games if you make it far into the playoffs, and body recovery time, you need whatever help you could get. And perhaps they feel they perceive, and maybe it's real, mm-hmm. that it really does make them feel better. And unlike actually measuring jumping height or physical right. traits, it's probably harder to measure if it really does make them feel better. How would you do that? One one sleeved arm, one non-sleeved arm? Well, you can measure actually muscle recovery. Okay. Um, there are ways that you can get at it. And I, I'm not a kinesthesiologist, so it's difficult for me to explain precisely how they do it. But they measure the degrees of different things like lactic acid, um, and they also measure different response reflexes. Um, but But here's the other piece. Um, There is some evidence that suggests that it's not actually from the compression. So people don't know if it's because you're covering more and Mm -hmm. so you have more heat there Mm. um, or if it's from the compression. There's one interesting study that showed that basically when you put on a compression sleeve, it doesn't matter what the pressure is. And all of the effects could be explained by the change in body temperature. The 80s were right. Leg warmers. Leg warmers <laughs> are the answer. So so that that's that's a possible caveat. And another caveat is different sports are different. Yeah. There are certain areas where we can say go sport by sport and say yeah. okay, when you're biking, maybe regularly it doesn't help. Maybe if you're doing the Tour de France and going up into the mountains, it might actually help. Have they looked at it how it's being marketed now just for the aged, the infirmed, the achy? For the aged and the infirm and the achy, there is some evidence that if you're sick, that this might help you a little bit. But we don't have very good evidence for any sort of long-term, you're not already sick type of impact. These are all things that are just being studied, especially, you know, for people who are perfectly healthy. So we'll give our ruling. Compression sleeves, are they bullshit? Um, they're sort of bullshit, but not all the way. We, we can't really give a definitive ruling on that yet. Yeah. But if you're using them to help improve performance during a sport like running or basketball, then they're probably bullshit. All right. This was Maria Konnikova. She is a kinesiologist. Wait, she is a kinesiologist. Wait, am I getting that right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Now she is a kinesiologist. <laughs> She's the author of several books, including Confidence Game. Yes, and one on kinesiology. And and (laughs) Confidence Games, subtitled, My Life as a Kinesiologist. Thank you. By the way, that was about a 12-minute interview with the compression sleeve. We could get it to eight minutes. Great. All right. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. I'll put mine on for next time. Please do. And now the spiel, Avengers Assess. So I saw the new Avengers movie this weekend with my kids. Here were the circumstances. It was in 3D. We sat in plush leather reclining chairs in the theater. There were pre-assigned seats. Is it too much to ask that the movie-going experience just be a little uncomfortable? You know, creates character. I got a six-year-old and an eight-year-old being feted like junior studio moguls in Swifty Lazar's screening room. Can I have a popcorn, Daddy? Well, I brought carrots. They're a healthy snack. Carrots? You'll never work in this town again! You think I need you for the father type? You're a dime a dozen pops. Give me Hugh Beaumont. Give me Fred McMurray on the blower. Hell, give me Rory Calhoun. He's looking to get off the horse. Okay, sorry. But the Avengers bothered me, got under my skin a little. Not for its two-hour, 21-minute running length. Not for its insistence on setting parts of it in the country of Sokovia 
and having all the Sokovians speak English, but with thick Boris and Natasha accents, or having robots, Avengers-employed robots, talk to the Sokovians in English and expecting the Sokovians to understand, and not having anyone at any point saying, uh, we are Sokovian, we speak Sokovania? I don't know. Sokovian robot relations are, in fact, pretty complex. It's a nuanced history. I don't want to give short shrift in this form. No. What really bugged me was all the deaths to civilians that I am supposed to just brush off as a sideline to the spectacle. Now, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of wanton destruction and carnage depicted in the superhero blockbusters Superman, Man of Steel, and the first Avengers movie. In fact, a consulting firm called Watson Technical Consulting did a study and concluded that the destruction in Superman would have resulted in 129,000 confirmed dead, 250,000 missing and probably dead, and a million injured. But confirmed, yes. Confirmed via the estimates of people watching a make-believe movie. Yeah, I get it. But the Avengers movie, now remember, this isn't the last one. This is the one that was put out two years ago. So in that movie, an effort was made, unlike the Superman film, to emphasize the care the heroes took to protect people. Here, Captain America hands out Avenger assignments. Thor, you got to try and bottleneck that portal. Slow him down. He got the lightning. Light the bastards up. You and me, we stay here on the ground. We keep the fighting here. And Hulk. Smash. Even given that, the Hollywood Reporter wrote up the destruction depicted in the first Avengers movie. 60 to $70 billion of costs with cleanup costs hitting $90 billion. Add on the thousands of lives. The consulting firm, same one, puts the overall price tag as $160 billion. Hollywood Reporter goes on. For context, the September 11th terrorist attacks cost $83 billion. Hurricane Katrina cost $90 billion. The tsunami in Japan last year cost $122 billion. It's not really context. It's closer to insult than context. And it's a reason why other comic book writers called, especially the Superman movie, disaster porn. So in the current film, this Avengers film that's in theaters now and can be watched on a reclining chair for 25 bucks, in the current film, there are maybe a half dozen explicit references. And in fact, the overweening mission is to save civilians. But I was still extremely put off by how saving civilians was depicted. It was a race against time element to evacuate an entire city with destruction looming. I'm not leaving here until everyone's safe, says Captain America. Putting aside the fact that that's impossible, but even if it weren't, the notion that a refugee's plight ends just as soon as he or she is out of the war zone is ridiculous. Now, I know, I'm going to say it. It's a movie. It's a popcorn summer blockbuster superhero movie. We are not supposed to engage in much empathy with minor characters who just scan, not as actual people, but just as extras. Once they're out of harm's way, they're all a vehicle to show the heroism of the costumed heroes. We're not supposed to think about all the post-traumatic stress visited upon them, just like we're not supposed to think about all the therapy that all the survivors of Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees are going to have to go through. But here's what I think is actually important and tells us something beyond 
depictions of saving Sokovians. See, the movie, the movie makers knew that we would be bothered if there were civilian casualties in the same way they know that if they have a cop in a uniform that clearly doesn't scan to audiences as a cop uniform, we'd be bumped, we'd be taken out of the movie, right? In the same way that they don't want to get military jargon horribly wrong or a lot of people in the audience will say, wait a minute, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, maybe it's Joss Whedon who made the movie. Maybe it's him being ethical and not wanting to contribute to disaster porn. Or maybe he's just a showman, right? Maybe he knows that if he shows horrible things happening to civilians, it would get in the way of our entertainment. And maybe he knows that if he just forgets about the civilians, people would be saying, huh, what about all those people? But the fact that this is the solution that he puts forward is telling. It tells me something about how comfortable Americans are. I shouldn't just say Americans. This movie had a huge worldwide opening. So how comfortable everyone, Sokovians included, how comfortable we are in terms of depicting peril and war zones. We just think out of rifle sight, out of mind. It tells me something about how easy we still think it is to send in the good guys with overwhelming force as a means of humanitarian intervention. Now, you could say, no, it doesn't, just a superhero movie. I'm telling you that if they showed superheroes saving everyone in an implausible way, we'd say, oh, that could never happen. And if they showed civilians wrecking a city where no accounting is made of the civilians dead, plenty of people would say, huh, I think a lot of civilians died. So the choices that Joss Whedon made tells me something about the movie-going public's line of implausibility when it comes to the concern that is due to the huddled masses. And my bottom line on that is, we're not much concerned. Is this asking too much of a superhero movie? I don't know. It wasn't that long ago that depicting the Incredible Hulk as anything other than a weightlifter painted green was asking too much. All these summer movies where the world, more often than not my city, gets wrecked, have become numbing to me. I like the visuals. The Marvel characters are at once the new gods and my old friends. And there's a lot of humor in the Avengers films. But just for once, I would like to see a blockbuster where it's not my block getting busted. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzia is off, which means Joel Meyer, managing producer, is actually the actual producer. And thanks to a compression monocle, is clearly seeing a way to bring this thing home in time. Executive producer Andy Bowers wears a compression dicky. In this way, he maximizes the seriousness of purpose he conveys via his mid-upper torso region. Go to iTunes, if you will. Write a review for The Gist. It's great to see the reviews. Helps us in the iTunes ranking. Let's us know you're out there. Let us know you care. The Gist wears a compression garment that keeps it focused, on point. It's Spanx. Can we just admit it? It's Spanx. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Carrie Goldberg. Hi, Carrie. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. Hey, Rachel. And we'd like to invite you to our podcast from WBUR and Slate, The The Checkup. Join us next time for an episode we're calling Teenage Zombies, a glimpse inside the minds of teens from sleep to porn. Check out The Checkup and other podcasts from the Panoply Network at itunes.com slash panoply. Panoply.